Unrelated Things. Greetings and welcome to episode number four of Unrelated Things. If you have listened to our earlier episodes, thank you very much for coming back for more. If you haven't listened to any of the earlier episodes for Unrelated Things, please go back and take a listen. I do not have any sponsors yet. If I had one, I would likely talk about them right here. So, for this episode, in lieu of a sponsor, here is a quote that I found on the internet. The greatest thing about the internet is that you can quote something and just totally make up the source. And that, of course, was Benjamin Franklin. You can make a donation or find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. You can also follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or Facebook. On to the dialogue and the diatribe. Top pick. And my top pick for this episode is an app. And it is an iOS app that I use on my iPad. This app is called Soundbite. It is by Black Cat Systems, and it is what is known as a cart machine, or it's a way to play clips of music. It's a way to store them, organize them, and play them back. So here's what Black Cat Systems has to say about Soundbite. Looking for a way to play sound clips at a theater or sporting event, as a DJ, or at other events? Don't want to lug a computer around with you? With Soundbite, the so-called cart machine used at radio stations in the past is now available for the iPad, iPhone, and iPod Touch. Whether you're programming a radio show or podcast, adding spice to the commentary at a local sporting event, controlling sound effects for a theater production, or simply organizing your personal playlist, Soundbite lets you manage and control playback of your audio files. And in my experience, Soundbite does a really, really good job of letting you manage and control the playback of your audio files. So I use Soundbite for this podcast to organize all my files. So in using Soundbite, I found you can add all your clips straight from your iTunes library. And there's lots of different configuration options, including setting the titles, colors for the buttons, playback options. You can mark it as played, etc. You can have it stop when you touch the button again, or you can have it play through. You can have them the, the sound clips overlap. So it is a really great way to add some other sounds into whatever event you're moving on. I'm not kidding you. I don't know why you said moving on. Whatever event or whatever project that you're working on, how about that? Oh, boy, howdy. Yeah. So check out Soundbite in the iOS App Store if you have any need for this type of an app. It's really, really been extremely useful. And I checked out a few of this type of app before I settled on Soundbite. And there are other functional apps, but this one just had a really, really good feature set. And I highly recommend it. So that is Soundbite. Roll up your trousers. It's time to wade into the news. You neglected to mention the sleeper sofa. I forgot all about the air hockey table. Relax. 
simply helping my friend move. Get going with the one and only taste of a Dunkin' iced coffee and reluctantly help your friend move. America runs on Dunkin'. Now, it was a Dunkin' Donuts ad that aired on TV a couple years back, and the music provided for that ad and for several other Dunkin' Donuts ads at that time was music done by the band They Might Be Giants, which is one of my favorite bands. So I use that as an introduction to my first story in the shallow end of the news. Uh, So... When the manhunt was going on for the Boston bombers, Boston went under a lockdown. I mean, the mayor and the governor locked the city down. They said, nobody opens, nobody goes to work, you know, we're shut down. And this cost businesses in the neighborhood of like $300 million to shut down for that day. But not everyone in Boston, not every business was shut down. There were definitely some vital functions and vital services that did remain functional, although all of the public transportation was shut down because they did not want people out traveling around. But even though Boston was under a really strict lockdown during that manhunt, Massachusetts-based Dunkin' Donuts remained open to serve first responders. A store manager from Newton told the... uh, website BuzzFeed, quote, there was an automated message going around telling businesses to close, but because we're Dunkin' Donuts, we called the police department and they said we didn't have to. An official statement followed. At the direction of authorities, select Dunkin' Donuts restaurants in the Boston area are open to take care of the needs of law enforcement and first responders. And with all of the Wealth of jokes between cops and donuts. I found this story to be interesting, to say the least. You know, stereotypes abound. But at the base of a lot of stereotypes, not all, but a lot of them, is a kernel of truth. So the ambassador of the Czech Republic felt the need to go on record after the Boston bombing and issue a statement informing the American people that the Czech Republic is not Chechnya. There was a lot of confusion. And I'll probably massacre this name, but Petr Gandalovich is the ambassador of the Czech Republic, and he made this statement. As more information on the origin of the alleged perpetrators is coming to light, I am concerned to note in the social media a most unfortunate misunderstanding in this respect. The Czech Republic and Chechnya are two very different entities. The Czech Republic is a Central European country. Chechnya is part of the Russian Federation. Amusing to note that the ambassador for the Czech Republic had to remind Americans that the Czech Republic is not Chechnya because of all of the information and misunderstanding flying around on the internet. This happened. 
So during the manhunt for the bombers in Boston, uh, I was watching some live news programming. And they were in the town of Watertown. There was a lot of police action at this particular moment in Watertown. And the news was live, so they were showing the area where they were at. So I, I, I hopped on to uh, Apple Maps to take a look at that area, see if I could see, you know, just kind of the lay of the land where, where all this activity was taking place. So I searched for Watertown and Otis Street. And when I did, I was just looking around at the houses there and the yards and everything. And one really stood out to me quite a lot. Just off of the corner of Walnut Street and Center Street in Watertown is a large flat-roofed building. And on the top of this large flat-roofed building are the words Walmart. It stands out very, very apparently on the top of this building. I don't know when and how it got there. I don't know if this was just some roofer's trick or if uh, Walmart has found a new way to advertise to people searching on various map, various satellite image um, mapping systems, but just found it really interesting among all of these fairly large homes uh, in this particular neighborhood is this one particular flat-roofed building with the giant Walmart Looks like it's probably painted in roofing tar up on the roof. So if you want to check that out, you can search Watertown Otis Street or Walnut and Center Street. And you'll find this building on Center Street, one house back from Walnut Street in Watertown, Massachusetts. Sometimes stuff happens. In unrelated news, in Florida, a six-year-old South Florida boy suffered minor injuries after being attacked by an alligator. The alligator attacked Friday afternoon when Joey Welch of Pompano Beach fell into shallow water at the edge of a boat ramp. Joey's father and other bystanders punched and kicked the alligator until it released the child. Joey was treated at a hospital for cuts and bruises to his right arm, shoulder, and chest. His father had bruised his right hand from punching the alligator. All right, cool. While that was going on on this side of the world, on the other side of the world, a very, very similar story was, was working its way out. Johan Galeran age 29, was dragged underwater by a crocodile, but said he punched it and escaped with only, quote, a few holes on the head. Mr. Galleran was swimming at night to a dinghy about 50 feet from shore in the remote Arnhem land in the Northern Territory of Australia when the saltwater crocodile began to attack. He said it was dark with no moon and he had no warning of the coming attack or the attempted death roll, a maneuver that the crocodiles grab a body part or grab onto an animal and roll quickly to try to break off a piece. And Mr. Galleran was quoted saying, I just had the feeling that if I want to fight for my life, 
I just need to move all of my body as much as I can. He just hit me on the top, on the left side, and on top of my neck, and tried to push me down in the water. I punched him anywhere. I just feel that I've been lucky, and I think if it was a bigger crocodile, I maybe wouldn't have any head. So, alligators, crocodiles, hunting in their native habitat as we uh, encroach on where they live and have to find ways to live with them safely. Hold on tight, we're headed for the deep end. So this year on Earth Day, Tim DeChristopher was released from prison. Tim DeChristopher was imprisoned two years ago for bidding on land during what was later found to have been an illegal auction in the George W. Bush administration. That auction was held to sell off public lands to oil and gas companies. Uh, Laura Whitney at the DSmog blog had this to write about the case. Legal documents from Tim's sentencing indicate that the main reason for Tim receiving jail time was not necessarily because his crime was heinous, but rather because of what he said after his conviction. The government's prosecutors proposed seven years incarceration in order to, quote, be sure a federal prison term here will deter others from entering a path of criminal behavior. And on a side note, this criminal behavior was that he bid on and won the rights to purchase land when he had no intention of purchasing that land. So he intentionally disrupted this auction of this land um, because he was opposed to it and felt that it was an illegal illegal um, sale or illegal auction. Back to Laurel Whitney's... Uh, thoughts on this particular case. Judge D. Benson, the Utah judge presiding over the case, stated during the sentencing hearing that Tim may not have received any time if he hadn't roused the crowd on the steps of the courthouse after being issued a guilty verdict, or if he hadn't further continued to address audiences around the country afterward about a total system change, overthrowing the fossil fuel industry and creating an economy that works better for everyone instead of protecting the interests of a small percentage of ultra-wealthy. Let's get deeper into the conversation. So on a similar note, um, according to the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, 2012 was the warmest year on record for the contiguous United States. So how did the news stations handle the issue of global warming in this warmest year on record? According to Media Matters, in 2012, NBC's Meet the Press mentioned global warming for six seconds for the entire year. ABC's This Week had the most coverage among the Sunday news and political programming with about five minutes of coverage for all year long. So despite the fact that global warning, warming, not warning, global warming 
is a significant issue, is something that is having impacts now and will have further impacts in the future. And despite that, the commercial media, especially and in including the, the Sunday news and political programming, paid virtually no attention to the issue in 2012, the warmest year on record in the contiguous United States. But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. Most of you probably remember the incident, the shootings that happened at Columbine High School. Um, there is an author named Dave Cullen who wrote a book about the incidents there. He spent 10 years after the Columbine tragedy researching this book. And he reported on this tragedy as it was unfolding and, and in the immediate aftermath of this, this event. But in his long review of all the evidence, he realized how wrong a lot of that early information was. And on his website devoted to, to his research, he has a section called Myths. Most of what you know about Columbine is probably wrong. Within six months of Columbine, virtually all reporters on the case, including me, accepted that we had gotten most of the basics wrong. This was mostly due to a lot of assumptions and jumping to conclusions based on fragmentary evidence. The result makes researching Columbine problematic. When you Google the early coverage, and you get, you'll get all of the myths. Dig up later material, and much of that was based on the bad early coverage. The myths are self-propagating. So, uh, someone uh, I follow who was I follow because they were were connected to the Eureka program, and I follow a lot of the people who used to be part of and the creators and participants in the show Eureka uh, is named Ed Fowler. And he tweeted this tweet out, which led me to Dave Cullen. One lesson from Dave Cullen's Columbine book is not to trust any so-called facts reported during a media feeding frenzy. Truth takes time. Some really, really important words to heed as we are in the midst of I won't say unprecedented but a, a phenomenal media feeding frenzy over information related to the Boston bombings and the Boston bombers and as Dave Cullen points out most of the early reports are just flat out wrong and there was a lot of that going going around, flying here and there and everywhere. And probably most of what you have heard to this point has been wrong. And I'll talk about that a little more later. But let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. Yeah, we've been out of that fun, quirky stuff for a while. Bad choice of bumpers. So, on a related note to the Boston bombing, uh, Boston-based musician Amanda Palmer wrote a poem following the Boston Marathon bombing. 
and she titled it A Poem for Jokar. It's, it's not a very long poem, so I'm going to read the opening of it here and then bring up some, some reaction from Amanda Palmer to the reaction to the poem. A poem for Jokar. You don't know how it felt to be in the womb, but it must have been at least a little warmer than this. You don't know how intimately they're recording your every move on closed-circuit cameras until you see your face reflected back at you through the pulp. You don't know how to stop picking at your fingers. You don't know how little you've been paying attention until you look down at your legs again. You don't know how many times you can say you're coming until they just stop believing you. You don't know how orgasmic the act of taking in a lungful of oxygen is until they hold your head under the water. So that was the opening to the Amanda Palmer poem titled A Poem for Jokar. And you can find the entire poem on Amanda Palmer's website. And I don't have the link or the exact URL here. But after writing this poem, Amanda Palmer got a lot of feedback, uh, positive and negative, and probably slanted more towards the negative. And she responded to that feedback, and this is what she had to say. Right now, in the wake of the unspeakable things that just happened here in Boston, a lot of people are very angry and confused and afraid, including me, which is why I wrote. As many people in the comments have pointed out, art is how I deal. I take the things around me and I put them in a blender in my mind and I connect the dots and I layer and I write. Sometimes songs, sometimes poems, sometimes emails. So that is a little bit of Amanda Palmer's poem and a little bit of her response to the response of, to that particular poem. And of course, the, the bombings have dominated the news since they've happened, despite some other major, major events that have gone on as well. The, the huge fertilizer plant explosion down in Texas, some other shootings around the country, earthquakes around the world, building collapses around the world. There's just been a, a a lot of bad news lately. Um, but writing on the Boston event uh, in Salon.com, Andrew O'Hayher, and that's O apostrophe H-E-H-I-R, had a pretty good piece. And I'm going to read the opening to that piece. To put it mildly, this has been a bad week for democracy and a worse one for public discourse. In the minutes and hours after the bombs went off in Boston last Monday, marathon runners, first responders, and many ordinary citizens responded to a chaotic situation with great courage and generosity, not knowing whether they might be putting their own lives at risk. Since then, though, it's mostly been a massive and disheartening national freakout with pundits, politicians, major news outlets, and the self-appointed sleuths of the internet 
in fact, nearly everyone besides those directly affected by the attack, heaping disgrace upon themselves. We've seen the most famous TV network in the news business repeatedly botch basic facts, while one of the country's largest circulation newspapers misreported the number of people killed, launched a wave of hysteria over a Saudi national who turned out to have nothing to do with the crime, and then published a cover photo suggesting that two other guys, who were also innocent, might be the bombers. We've seen the vaunted crowdsourcing capability of Reddit degenerate into self-reinforcing mass delusion in which a bunch of people whose law enforcement expertise consisted of massive doses of CSI convinced themselves that a missing college student was one of the bombing suspects. He wasn't. And with that young man's fate still unknown, how does his family feel today? We've watched elected officials and political commentators struggle to twist every nubbin of news or rumor towards some perceived short-term tactical advantage. It was as if only it was as if the only real importance of this horrific but modestly scaled terrorist attack lay in how it could prove the essential rightness of one's existing worldview. So that was the opening of the story called How Boston Exposes America's Dark Post 9-11 Bargain by Andrew O'Hayher in Salon.com. And it's a good read. And it's, I think, really, really hit the nail on the head with our national freakout that has been going on since the bombings. So let's go on to one more thing. So there's a Vermont folk artist who built a t-shirt business around the phrase, eat more kale. But the U.S. US Patent and Trademark Office has given him a preliminary no in his effort to protect that business and that trademark after the Chick-fil-A restaurant chain complained. This has been an ongoing issue, but one that I really just recently became aware of. So there's a gentleman here in the state of Vermont named Bo Muller Moore, and he makes hand-stenciled t-shirts that say, Eat More Kale, printed on them. He makes them one at a time in a room above his garage in Montpelier. So... He's going along and he's doing his business and he gets contacted by Chick-fil-A and they say, no, you can't do this anymore. And this happened several years back. And he, he got a, a, a lawyer um, and the lawyer wrote to Chick-fil-A and said, you know, this is totally not related. You totally have no case to stop my client from, from conducting his business. If you have any case whatsoever, now, the lawyer also said, this is going to bring a lot of bad publicity to you. If you have any case whatsoever, please respond within a certain amount of time. And there was no response. So they dropped it at that point uh, in time, thought that it was relatively settled, that Chick-fil-A was okay with this this small t-shirt business to continue to operate. But when he filed for the trademark, Chick-fil-A decided they could not 
let that trademark filing proceed. They had to, to argue against it. So Chick-fil-A sent uh, Mr. Muller Moore a letter, and this is part of what it wrote, part of what it said. Your client's Eat More Kale mark plays off of and imitates Chick-fil-A's valuable Eat More Chicken intellectual property by using a prefix confusingly similar to Chick-fil-A's federally registered Eat More Chicken trademarks. Your client's misappropriation of Chick-fil-A's Eat More Chicken intellectual property to play off of and benefit from the extraordinary fame and goodwill of Chick-fil-A's trademarks, copyrights, and popular promotional campaign is likely to cause confusion of the public and dilutes the distinctiveness of Chick-fil-A's intellectual property and diminishes its value. Such actions constitute trademark infringement, dilution, and unfair competition in violation of federal and state law. In the second to last paragraph of the letter, the lawyer makes Chick-fil-A's demands. Muller Moore is to immediately abandon his application for U.S. trademark. He is to cease and forever desist all plans to use the phrase eat more kale for his business. And he is to arrange for the transfer of his website, eatmorekale.com, domain name, to Chick-fil-A. So you can check out more about this case and about this uh, business at eatmorekale.com, which is up and functioning and successful and hopefully will continue to be. In addition to that, recently um, people working on a documentary about this story and other related stories uh, had a Kickstarter to raise money to to work to continue work on the documentary. The documentary is called A Defiant Dude. And you can find that at adefiantdude.com. And here is a little clip from that documentary. I'm a microbiz in Vermont making a handful of hand-printed shirts versus a multi-billion dollar corporation that sells just under 500 sandwiches per minute. I want to be the guy that stands up to them and, and wins and, and says, I'm not taking your bullshit. I'm not going to back down just because you say I should. And I hope he has a lot of success in his fight to defend his his trademark and his business, which in no way, shape, or form can be confused with Chick-fil-A. It, this gentleman makes t-shirts. They sell chicken sandwiches. There is no relationship between the two businesses. There should be no issue whatsoever for him to use the phrase, eat more. Your mom used this phrase when you were growing up. This phrase is a common phrase. Eat more of this. Eat more of that. The fact that he screen prints this phrase on a t-shirt has zero impact on Chick-fil-A. I understand the need to defend trademarks. And if you fail to defend your trademark, someone else can argue in the future that you abandoned the trademark because you failed to defend it to, to every extent that you could. I get that. But they should have said, we believe that this could potentially be confusing 
Or perhaps they could have said, we have examined your business and what you do, and we've determined that despite the fact that there are some similarities between your slogan and our slogan, as long as you confine your business to t-shirts and not selling sandwiches, we consider this not to be conflicting with our trademark. End of story. Um, and it, it would give them some background to say that they did look at whether or not that violated their trademark and determined that that particular use in that specific case did not. So come on, Chick-fil-A. This is a ridiculous case. It's one you should get out of before you get more and more bad publicity. And it's one you should get out of because your case is so terribly weak. Because TV is so good. TV is so good. So let's move on to some news about TV. I love the fact that these uh, companies like Amazon, like Netflix, like iTunes and Hulu and others um, are getting into the business of producing their own TV shows. And they're not waiting for the big networks or the other uh, television content producers to produce it, but they're getting into funding, they're getting into development, they are changing the way that the the TV business, the business of producing television programs is working. So Amazon has come out recently. It has ordered and it has now distributed on, on Amazon um, 14 TV pilots. And these are all available now on Amazon. On uh, what do they call their their system? Amazon Instant Video. So these are all available on Amazon Instant right now. You can go on and you can stream these shows, and you can actually based based upon viewers' feedback as one, one part of, of what they will be looking at to determine what shows will go forward from pilot to series, um, you will help determine which of these programs may continue on to series. I have not seen very many of these programs. In fact, I've seen only parts of two of these programs so far. So I cannot direct you and tell you which of these programs may be great and which may be not. So that is for you to check out and decide. So uh, the telegraph.co.uk had a story about this, and it's called Amazon Unveils TV Pilots. Um, the shows that Amazon ordered as pilots are most are either in the comedy genre or children's programming. They'll be available on Love Film in the UK and Germany and via Amazon.com in the US. Viewers' feedback will influence which shows get made Although the chief marketing officer said a range of factors will go into the overall decision. So this is not uh, American Idol style. You vote and that particular pilot will win the opportunity to go to full series. The eight adult comedies and six children's animations are the Amazon's first venture into full-blown TV production. And it differs a bit from Netflix's approach to House of Cards, 
because they're trying to bring new writers into the fold and, and new developers into the fold rather than funding a series that would likely have been made somewhere, that, that could have easily been made um, on a conventional TV network the way they, they funded House of Cards, which has been enormously successful for Netflix, driven a lot more subscribers to Netflix. Uh, Roy Price, a director of Amazon Studios, said, I think the distinction between a regular TV show and an online TV show will soon fade away, which I think is fantastic. I think that, that definitely the, um, the market is changing and the way that we receive our entertainment is changing. And the, the networks or, or whomever wants to provide this entertainment in the future need to make some big adjustments to the old way of doing things. So let's see what is next. So related to that particular story, uh, here's an app of the week. My app of the week is the Amazon Instant Video app. And this is for the iPad, iPhone, and iPod Touch. So Amazon Instant Video and Prime Instant Video is now available on your iPad, iPod, and, and iPhone. And this app's been out for a while. They did a recent update to it. Um, it's still missing some really important functionality for me. However, it is a really, really useful app and an app that I have used. Uh, I am an Amazon Prime member. Uh, Amazon Prime is about $80 per year. It includes free second-day shipping for um, anything that you buy. Not anything, but on much of what you can buy on Amazon.com. In addition, it offers unlimited access to over 38,000 Prime Instant Video titles at no extra cost. So that cost is all rolled into that $80. So $80 for the shipping on its own is not worth it. $80 for the video on its own for me is not worth it. But that combination package that they have right now uh, is definitely worthwhile for me. So you can look at any of your video's purchases and you can um, watch any rentals in your video library on the Amazon Instant Video app. Or you can watch any of the free to access Amazon Prime instant videos. You can shop directly from your mobile device. You can shop Amazon's library of more than 150,000 movies and TV episodes from um, the, from your, actually it says from the Safari web browser on your Apple device. Once you've purchased or rented a video, it will show up in your video library on your Apple device in seconds. So it doesn't have in-app purchasing of the content. And that's because any in-app purchases, Apple gets a cut of. So you do have to go, and if you're making purchases, you have to purchase that um, those those videos separately through Safari. But if you do have Amazon Prime, there's no second step like that. You're you're you choose whatever you want to watch, and it streams instantly, and you can watch it. It's how I started started watching the series Fringe. Watched the first few episodes of Fringe on the Amazon Instant Video app because Fringe was not at that point in time available on Netflix. And I have started watching more of the Fringe series on Netflix. I'm only 
a little ways into the first season. So one of the reasons why I switched in that particular instance to start to watch on Netflix when it became available on Netflix is Netflix is available on more devices um, for me. I can get Netflix on my Apple TV and I can, more importantly, AirPlay from my net from Netflix on my iPad through my Apple TV to my television set. That is, I think, the big glaring omission from the Amazon app, uh, the Amazon Instant Video app, is no AirPlay. I can only watch that video on my iPad. I can't send that through my Apple TV to my television, which is what I would rather prefer to do. But all in all, good app, uh, good search functions. You can search the videos that are available on Amazon.com and watch those videos right through the app on your iPhone, iPad, or iPod Touch. In other TV news, Futurama, the TV show Futurama, which is an animated TV show um, launched by Matt Groening, the, the person behind The Simpsons, um, Futurama has been canceled again after a four-year run on Comedy Central. Comedy Central has elected not to renew the series Futurama, which has a, a really big following, um, but not enough apparently or not, not a growing audience for Comedy Central to decide to continue to order episodes of Futurama. Futurama actually was canceled once before. In 2003, Futurama was being shown on the Fox network, and Fox ended their orders of that series after four seasons in 2003. Comedy Central eventually revived the um, comedy series, and they, they renewed it for seasons six and seven. And now it is into season eight. Series creator Matt Gronig tells EW.com that the show may again seek out another new home, saying, we have many more stories to tell. But should there be no takers, this is a really great way to go out. I think these episodes are the best ones we've ever done. So, Futurama getting canceled again. The final season is about to start. Um... Actually, I, I misspoke earlier. I said season eight was the last season coming up, but season seven, the final back half of season seven, will start showing June 19th on Comedy Central, and the last series finale is set to air on September 4th. So if you're a fan of Futurama, start to raise some heck and see if we can't, or you can't, I gotta say, I like the show Futurama, but I wouldn't consider myself a fan. I will watch it, you know, at times, but it won't. It's not a show that I seek out to watch. But I think it's really smart comedy, uh, really, really funny show with interesting characters. Um, so if you are one of the fans of Futurama, you know, get, sharpen your pitchforks and get out there and fight for Futurama to be continued or to get picked up um, by another another network and in these in these days uh, it may not even be another network 
This could get picked up for new seasons and new episodes by Netflix, by Amazon, by iTunes. There's a lot of more alternatives out there than ever before for a canceled series to find a renewal. Um, Xbox, Microsoft and Xbox actually has been recently in talks to revive the TV show Heroes, which is one of my favorite TV shows. Um, and so they are exploring whether they will bring Heroes back with new content and new characters to be aired on Xbox through Xbox Live. So lots and lots of options out there, a lot more options than there used to be for a TV series that has been canceled by its current network and with opportunities out there for it to be picked up somewhere else. Because TV is so good. Speaking of canceled programming, on to the Eureka Minute. So last week I talked about the Metacritic data for Eureka and what the t TV critics had, or how the TV critics had rated that program. I don't remember off the top of my head. It was something like a 6.2 or a 6.4. I believe the critics rated that program when a, a bunch of different um, critiques of the program, the opening episodes and opening season were gathered together. Uh, Metacritic also posts reviews by the public. So while the critics gave it a, a little above a six for the opening season of Eureka, Eureka season one on Metacritic by the public got an 8.9, which they, they consider universal acclaim. There were 116 ratings, and of those 116 ratings, 110 were positive, two were mixed, and four of those ratings were negative ratings. So I'm just going to read a few of the ratings to you. And all of these include the positive ratings. With the positive ratings so overwhelming, um, I did not select any of the ne negative ratings to read. So this is how people experience. And these are, are ratings that were mostly published in 2006 when Eureka first came out with uh, season number one on sci-fi and there are a few later um later postings and the way the tv shows or tv series can be watched now with full episodes available on on a, a on a netflix or on amazon.com or some other some other streaming site people are still just discovering some of these shows now so so that's why some of the ratings were made later than when season number one first aired. But in any event, I'm just going to read through some of these. Um, so here we go. I want to visit this town. Funny show without resorting to the level found in many cliche infested television shows trying to pass themselves off as funny. Don't listen to the critics. This show has become one of my favorite shows of all time. There's just something about it that keeps me drawn into it. 
and it's a major plus that the main character is very likable and draws a contrast between the town and himself. I love this show for its originality, for its wit, and for its highbrow humor. The one-liners are just to die for. I look forward to them every week. Great writing, as well as excellent exposure to real scientific concepts, are why I tune in. Phenomenal show. A very welcome change in a world of depressive shows. Creative, amazing, funny, great ideas. And finally, I love this show. Enjoyable episode per episode, but best once you get to know the quirky yet well-developed characters. I hope the show stays for a while. It did stay for a while. It lived for five seasons on sci-fi before being canceled before its time. Uh, definitely a show that needs to get picked up somewhere by some new content producer. If you have no idea what Eureka is and you just sat through all of those comments about Eureka, just a quick, quick overview. Eureka is about a uh, a kind of a secret town set up by the government where a whole lot of scientists live and they work on extreme scientific projects, many of which cause problems that the sheriff in town ends up having to help resolve. Um, the sheriff is played by Colin Ferguson. And in season one, his nemesis was played by Ed Quinn. Uh, his nemesis was um, Stark. So recently, I follow both Colin Ferguson and Ed Quinn on Twitter. And recently, Colin Ferguson tweeted this. I'm in day two of a new iPhone-type phone. I am in the frustration period. To all those I am not responding to, sadly, it's too hard. Ed Quinn replied, So it's true. Life does imitate art. Thanks, Carter. Hashtag Eureka. Carter was Sheriff Carter, which was Colin Ferguson's character, and, and exactly experienced the type of frustration that Colin Ferguson is experiencing in real life as he tries to work out his new device. And Colin Ferguson replied back to Ed Quinn, and first mentioned something about a press release that Ed Quinn had, had mentioned previously. Here is Colin Ferguson's reply. Oh, just make your press release. Smiley face. It's so painful giving up a keyboard. I feel like I'm trapped in a bubble. This series of tweets just brought back all kinds of things from the series for me from the Eureka TV series, Trapped in a Bubble. There was an episode where one of the characters was trapped in a bubble. The character, uh, Sheriff Carter, was constantly befuddled by the extreme science that was happening around him. Um, so just a really amusing series of tweets back and forth between two former cast members about some of the same types of things that the characters experienced on the TV show Eureka. 
So on to some Apple news. There's been a lot of different little tidbits of Apple news in the last week. So let's rattle them off. From Techno Buffalo, um, someone took some some pictures of an iPad or what is purported to be an iPad 5 rear shell. So the new newer version of iPad not yet released. And it's been fairly common for some parts to leak out before the final devices are presented to the public. And a lot of rumors are built prior to any parts leaking out. And then they're either confirmed or or refuted by the parts that leak out. And, and the, the part leaks are also still rumors. There's no confirmation that any leaked part is an actual part that will appear in the future. It definitely gets closer to reality when there are parts that are likely made for those devices the devices are produced in huge quantities before they are released to the public in order to try to keep up with the demand for the public so here is a bit of a story from brandon russell writing on techno buffalo apple has been unusually silent over the past several months we haven't seen any big announcements since the ipod 5 which was back in September of last year. We're quickly skipping over the company's annual iPod announcement, and that vow of silence may tell us a lot about what to expect when a reveal does finally come. We've heard a lot about the likelihood of a redesigned, full-sized iPad. Today's leak further backs up rumors that we'll see a bigger iPad Mini-esque for form factor. Weird way that he phrased that sentence. So the form factor for the iPad 5 is rumored to take a lot of design cues from the form factor for the iPad Mini, which makes sense. The Mini comes out with a new style, a new look. Uh, it makes sense that they, if that's the direction they're going, that they follow that up and and bring some of those design elements to the full size iPad. Just last week, reports suggested Apple would introduce an iPad that is 25% lighter and 15% thinner than the fourth generation iPad. That is all hearsay based on an analyst note, but there was also a case leak based around the rumored thinner design. So some things coming together for a likely design changes in the upcoming iPad 5. So, on to some other Apple news. Uh, Cult of Mac reported a story on some figures that were released by NPD. And NPD released a new report that highlights Apple's strength in the electronic video sales and rentals. While everyone else is fighting for second place, Apple still commands over 67% of the market. According to the study, Apple dominates online video purchases the same way iTunes has ruled over online music sales. In 2012, 67% of online video purchases were made through iTunes, while Apple's closest competitor, Xbox Video, managed to capture 10% of the market for movies and 14% for TV shows. Amazon Instant Video was third with 10% of movie and 8% of TV show viewing. 
When it comes to video rentals, it's a similar story, although Apple doesn't have quite as good margins. For video on demand, iTunes captures 45% of the market, while Amazon Instant Video grabbed 18% in 2012. So kind of related to the previous stories about content and where the content is and who's who's releasing what. Um, just a story about where people are viewing their online videos. Another report came out and a recent survey was conducted by Change Wave Research. And according to that survey, 19% of consumers are very likely or somewhat likely to purchase an Apple smartwatch. The Apple Watch, it's commonly called the iWatch, has been rumored for a while now, unknown if or when it will come out. But prior to its debut, um, there's been some surveys conducted about is there interest, is the public interested in this type of a device? And so 19% of the consumers said they are very likely or somewhat likely to purchase an Apple smartwatch. Doesn't sound like a very big percentage, but the pool of consumers is enormous and that percentage is very, very similar. In fact, almost identical to the percentage prior to the iPod release and the iPad release. The public interest was in the same neighborhood as far as percentage that was interested in very likely or somewhat likely purchasing those devices. So if that is the case and all of those people who are very likely or somewhat likely go ahead and make that choice and make that decision to purchase, the iWatch is going to be enormously successful. So yesterday Apple announced its second quarter 2013 earnings, which is January, February, March of 2013. And Apple had set, um, had projected its earnings to be in the neighborhood of 41 to $43 billion in revenue. And they beat that. They had $43.6 billion in revenue and they had $9.5 billion in profit. So big, big numbers. The biggest revenue level for that for quarter two in Apple's history. So continued strong growth in revenue. However, the profit on that revenue of $9.5 billion was a drop from the same quarter last year. It's the first drop in profit that Apple has experienced in about 10 years. Apple has seen 10 years of consistent profit growth quarter to quarter uh, or quarter, quarter this year versus the same quarter last year, which is the only way you can really compare because the quarters are so uneven because of the holiday season skews the amount of people purchasing in a particular quarter. So quarters are always compared to the same quarter in the previous year. So, again, huge, huge growth in revenue, but the first reduction ever in Apple's profit. And that's because their profit margins are significantly lower in quarter two this year versus quarter two last year. Uh, quarter two last year, the profit margins on Apple products were in the 47% range, which is huge. And this year, the profit margin was about 37%. So considerable drop in the profit margin. One of the key 
reasons for this is likely to be the iPad mini. A year ago in the same quarter, the iPad mini was not available. And when Apple brought the iPad mini out, it brought it out at a pretty aggressive price, not as low as many people had hoped for, um, or, or uh, some had rumored it would be out at about $299. It came out at $329. They brought that out at a, at a rate that was much lower profit than previous, previous iPads, previous uh, products that Apple has produced. So that is a big reason why the reduction in profit for Apple. But Apple is going strong. There are many companies that survive on much smaller profit margins. And there are few companies that rake in $9.5 billion in profit in three months' time. And let's go... Forward. So what's driving some of those profits? Uh, Verizon had released some numbers. Verizon released its first fiscal quarter earnings report for 2013, giving us the first look to what to expect from iPhone sales figures. Verizon activated, activated some 4 million iPhones during its first fiscal quarter, according to the website TechCrunch. Um, so iPhone activations were up. I think the total number of smartphones that Verizon had activated in this time period was 7.2 million. So 55% of the smartphone activations from Verizon were iPhones. It's an enormous number. When the iPhone was launched, uh, Steve Jobs talked about trying to garner 1% of the, the billion dollar phone market. So it's amazing to see numbers like this. And this is this is certainly a s small piece of the bigger global picture of phone sales. But having from this particular carrier in the U.S., 55% of the smartphone activations that they had in this quarter were iPhones is just a huge, huge achievement. And more earning stories. So there was a major earthquake in China, which was reported in our in our press here in the U.S., but with so many other stories competing for time, did not have any significant focus. So there was a major earthquake that I believe uh, that that hit the Sichuan area in China. Um, and Apple up updated their Chinese homepage of the Apple website to recognize the earthquake, offer donations, and support for the victims. So Apple wrote on their website, our deepest condolences to those who were taken away by the Sichuan Yan earthquake and respect to all the rescuers. May those who have passed away rest in peace and may the survivors stay strong. Um, the company went on, in this difficult time, our hearts are with the Sichuan earthquake victims. In addition to cash donations to help the victims ride out the storm, we will also commit to donating brand new Apple equipment to some of the schools in the affected region. And the local Apple staff will be on standby to provide support. So Apple's reaction to the 
earthquake in China in addition to updating its website to reflect the tragedy, which it has done in the past um, for other tragedies, uh, tragedies in the U.S. It's collected money and funneled money to the Red Cross for different um, tragedies that have happened in the past uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere. On top of updating its front page, Apple donated $8 million to Chinese earthquake victims. So both in word and in deed, Apple has reached out to support the people that support it in a time of tragedy. So moving on to another topic. I'm going to move on now. I don't even know where to start. Yeah, well, that's because I don't have a bumper for podcasts. I should probably create a bumper for podcasts. So here's my podcast of the week. My podcast of the week is the Anatco Almanac. Easier to say than to spell, but not easy in any event unless you've heard it said often. Though the Anatco Almanac is hosted by Andy Anatco and Dan Benjamin of 5x5 Network. Um, uh, the Anatco Almanac is a weekly discussion that focuses on whatever Andy Anatko wants to talk about. Andy Anatko is the tech writer for the Chicago Sun-Times, and he is a fan of many things in the geek world, especially comics, um, comic conventions, and of course technology, um... So here's a little blurb about the Anatco Almanac from iTunes. The Anatco Almanac is a weekly discussion that mostly focuses on the clickable arts. The movies, music, books, comics, articles, and other bits of entertainment and news that Andy and Dan have been reaching through a mouse click recently. Warning, the Almanac is a designated meme-free zone. We prefer our pianos to be played by expert human artists, not by poorly photoshopped cats. So I really recommend uh, the Anatco Almanac. There's uh, a lot of interesting banter and discussions that go on on it. And I've mashed together a few clips of a couple of recent episodes. I'm Andy Anatko. Welcome to this episode 00066 of the Anatko Almanac. Can I buy you? I want to buy you a Dunkin' Donuts gift card. So you can quit, guys. Right, next time you go out for coffee, I want you to have a triple latte on me. And uh, have you started playing around with Google Now yet? When we talk about things like Google Now, uh, oftentimes people kind of miscategorize it as, well, Apple has Siri, Google has Google Now. Actually, they're two very, very different things with two very, very different attitudes. And uh, they were making bacon here, so I got to enjoy some of the bacon. Just a little pinch of Hormel between your cheek and gum. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, you're re- and you're ready to, to, to attack that day. Yeah, I'm ready for the day, ready to start. <laughs> Excellent. The, 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 fact that the, the fact of the matter is that The Fantastic Four is a strong book and a strong team because you have Reed Richards and Sue Storm running that as a partnership. Uh, and you don't need to give a, a, a fake label uh, to this woman in order to make her an equal. Mm-hmm. And lastly, uh, from Paul, Paul Pete Harbison, uh, the Almanac is one of my favorite podcasts. 
but I feel I must offer a clarification. Andy referred to a resident groundhog. I referred to the the critters on my property. Three definitely labeled, uh, three identifiable groundhogs that make their make their ways uh, to the backyard. Uh, Andy referred to a resident groundhog as the senior staff groundhog. It may, of course, be different in the Boston area. Boston being, after all, one of the birthplaces of the late revolutionary unpleasantness. Pete, I think that you're from overseas. Uh, but I'm pretty sure the groundhogs in more northern New England latitudes employ a social order more traditional and hereditary and, in fact, do not recognize task-based identification, i.e. staff, nor hierarchy associated directly with tenure, a.k.a. Uh, i.e. senior. I believe I'm correct in pointing out there are two options for delineating groundhog hierarchy and social order, and he goes on to explain that there would probably be some sort of title program i.e. Baron Groundhog or the Earl of Groundhogs. Um, well, uh, thank you, Pete. Uh, there may be something to that. I've, I haven't thought quite that much about it. Uh, I, senior staff Groundhog is a way to identify the one that is as the, the, the grayest of muzzle and uh, least sleek of coat. Uh, as, as in, you know, gee, I haven't seen the senior staff Groundhog in a few weeks. I hope he's okay. Um, but you have, you have given me something to think about because... As many uh, of our listeners will certainly uh, uh, certainly understand, oftentimes, instead of awarding your highest performing employees with a pay pay raise or an increase in benefits, you can just give them a phony baloney title that really seems uh, seems to, to do the mark. Uh, so perhaps like the next time like a performance review comes up, if a performance review ever comes up, uh, rather than uh, giving the, giving uh, uh, giving the senior staff groundhog a, like a, a, a commute, commuting allowance or something, I'll simply like start allow him to have a fancy hat and refer to himself as Air Marshal Groundhog. So those were a few clips and bits and pieces from a couple of the recent episodes of the Anatko Almanac podcast. Some of the recent episodes were titled The Obama Phone, Claire Huxtable Syndrome, If I Had a Womb, Pro-Dolphin Tank Posturing, and Charging Station, Hotel, Pancake Bar. So uh, this is a podcast that I really get a lot of enjoyment and entertainment out of listening to. I definitely recommend that you check it out. It is available wherever you find your podcast. You can get it on iTunes. You can get it through many podcast apps. And it is put out and available um, from the 5 by 5 network. So definitely go ahead and check out the Anatko Almanac. That's Chumbawamba singing Everything You Know Is Wrong. And that is certainly the case, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast. If you've been following the news stories coming out about the bombings in Boston, it is very likely that everything you know is wrong. Uh, There's a story on Guardian UK titled Reddit's Boston Marathon Speculation Shows the Limits of Crowdsourcing. And I find this really, really interesting as I've been following the news and the rumors and the innuendo about the Boston bombing. There's a lot of fascinating 
things that are, are coming forward if you have interest in the media in what the media is doing and how it functions and why it's doing what it's doing there's there's going to be courses taught about the media response um, and the media frenzy and the public frenzy that has occurred since the Boston Marathon bombings. Um, one of the reasons why I'm really interested in in the feedback from various people and why I read this particular article is because I experienced some of that Reddit um, speculation and Reddit crowdsourcing of of photographs um, in in real time um, I I perused reddit on occasion I went on to see what was there what were the top topics and there was a, a significant thread about identifying the bombers um, from from photos that were public. So there were there were a lot of public photos from the scene of the bombing prior to the bombing. There was a lot of speculation about people in those photos. Um, there was targeted speculation or speculation that settled on four or five different people in those photos. And that speculation came with with a a kernel of truth, or it wasn't blind speculation. And the Reddit stories or the Reddit threads that were in relation to this, in relation to the crowdsourcing of information, they really made a strong attempt to regulate them and make sure that if names were known or names were speculated, that names weren't released, that addresses weren't released, um, there was... A concerted effort um, on the part of members of that, uh, of members of people that were, or members of Reddit that were posting on that thread, to to control the frenzy. But it wasn't successful, and I almost said it wasn't entirely successful. But it wasn't anywhere near as successful as it needed to be. I think that the crowdsourcing of this type of information can be really, really useful. With more people viewing more images, there can be people who notice things that someone else might not. But the downside is none of these people are trained. None of these people are professional investigators. None of these people really know what to look for, really know what is suspicious. None of these people have all of the data that the crime scene investigators have and know tons more information than the rest of us know out in the public. So when we look at things and speculate on things, you know, we can easily draw conclusions that that someone who is close to the case could could dismiss and could say no, I know this fact which definitely, you know, negates that direction that you're headed in. So really really interesting. I I I saw this unfold on Reddit um while people were reviewing images and photos and trying to trying to say who looks suspicious in these photos. And they found some people that looked suspicious. And there were some reasonable, logical reasons why they were thought to look suspicious. 
And then there was wild speculation, and there were circles and arrows and and indications that were false and and tracings of a backpack shape and saying, here's how that bomb could fit inside this backpack when that bomb wasn't inside that backpack. There were a lot of things I was rightly skeptical of. But there were nah, there were there was no one identified in that thread that I really believed was a likely um culprit, was likely behind it. I I didn't participate. I didn't write anything into the, into those threads. I don't participate in that way very much on Reddit. I'm more of a, a watcher and a, a lurker than a participant. So in any event, uh, after the Reddit, um, that Reddit thread and, the, and a following Reddit thread, which was a live thread with police scanner information, a lot of which also turned out to be inaccurate, um, during the shootout in Watertown, in that part, I... I like stuck with that and flipped back and forth between a few sources, including Reddit, while that was all happening live in Watertown, hearing some relatively accurate information about what was happening and hearing some other terribly inaccurate information. And I think the biggest, biggest problem is when names were named um, and when people latched onto those names, it's... It, the frenzy of reporting and the frenzy of people focusing their attention on this and offering their ideas and thoughts turned into a mob mentality, which was extraordinarily harmful. So let me move on. And this particular look at what was going on on Reddit um, is from Charles Arthur from The Guardian UK and in part... This is what his story reads. Reddit gets it right, proclaimed the top post on the thread on Reddit, one of the world's most read sites. The cause for self-congratulation? Getting the names of the suspects in the Boston Marathon bombing right, of course. Hang on, what's this? You say that the men chased by Boston police were brothers with a different name? Reddit got it wrong? But everyone knows that the internet is better at whatever it turns its hands to than traditional whatevers, media. We've got Twitter, law enforcement, we've got Anonymous. The idea that Reddit and 4chan, another similar site, could figure out not only who of the many attendees at the Boston Marathon was a suspect, but also name them, seems to have spawned the very early, seems to have spawned very early on out of a laudable sense of civic duty. Unfortunately, there was only ever the tiniest chance that it would work out, and far more chance that it would go horribly wrong, as it did. Between them, the two forms wrongly identified a number of people. There were several people identified in images. There were people who were named and none of those people turned out to be the people who were ultimately responsible for the bombings. The, what the, the images and the information that I saw on Reddit did not include images of the suspects in this case. Um, the, the, the images that were released by the FBI just were, for the most part, not publicly available, 
and not reviewed by Reddit or, or other, other similar sites that I am aware of. So one of the most troubling things that I came across was when the um, when during the shootout portion of the the coverage on Reddit, the a name came up, and it was the name, and I don't know if I recall it. Yeah, I think it's right here on this particular site. Um, the name was Sunil Tripathi, and he was named. Someone said they heard his name on a police scanner. And thought that he was involved. And Sunil Tripathi is a missing college student from, I believe, Brown University that's been missing for over a month. And the extent to which people latched onto his name and believed that he was bomber number two was extraordinary um, in the information that I was watching. And... It went so far as someone taking the two images of Sunil and of Bomber Number Two, and creating a GIF that that faded back and forth between the two images to prove that they were the same person. I was really skeptical. There were some similarities in these two people, but if you looked at various photos of these two people, Sunil did not resemble to that extent Bomber Number Two. So huge mistakes were made um, in in kind of the crowdsource police. I won't even shouldn't even call it police work the crowdsource investigation. Um, and Reddit recognized this. So Reddit uh, a couple days ago posted this piece. It's called "Reflections on the Recent Boston Crisis." After some reflection, we want to share our thoughts about the Reddit activity during the recent crisis in Boston. We all need to look at what happened and make sure that in the future, we do everything we can to help and not hinder crisis situations. During the tragedy and the aftermath, people found many different avenues to help on Reddit. The vast majority of these activities were positive. They provided a way for people to stay informed as well as a place to just discuss, cope, and try to make sense of what happened. Primarily, Reddit served as a great clearinghouse for information. On top of that, Redditors did everything from donating to relief funds, having pizzas delivered to area police and hospitals, to arranging for people with dogs to bring them to a park so people could just escape a bit with some animal therapy and even arranging housing and transportation for out-of-towners who were stranded in Boston because of the bombing. We are all incredibly proud that the Reddit platform enabled this help. However, though started with noble intentions, some of the activity on Reddit fueled online witch hunts and dangerous speculation, which spiraled into very negative consequences for innocent parties. The Reddit staff and the millions of people on Reddit around the world deeply regret that this happened. We have apologized privately to the family of missing college student Sunil Tripathi, as have various users and moderators. We want to take this opportunity to apologize publicly for the pain they have had to endure. We hope that this painful event will be channeled into something positive 
and the increased awareness will lead to Sunil's quick and safe return home. We encourage everyone to join and show your support for the Tripathi family and their search. A few years ago, Reddit enacted a policy not to allow personal information on the site. This was because let's find out who this is events frequently resulted in witch hunts, often incorrectly identifying innocent suspects and disrupting or ruining their lives. We hope that the crowdsourced search for new information would not spark exactly this type of witch hunt. We were wrong. The search for the bombers bore less resemblance to the types of vindictive internet witch hunts our no personal information rule was originally written for, but the outcome was no different. So Reddit recognized the harm that was done and the speculation that occurred among members of their of the, the Reddit community. And that doesn't mean that all Reddit members of the Reddit community. It means that despite safeguards and despite many people uh, urging caution on Reddit, the mob mentality took over and people believed things to be true, which turned out not necessarily to be true. I think these were honest mistakes by well-meaning people, but they just went in a direction that was really harmful. There's another whole piece of this that I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to, but there's a big conspiracy theory. I don't know if this is big. There's a small vocal conspiracy theory group or number of groups that don't believe anything from the official channels. And I'm skeptical of official channels. Everybody has an agenda of what information they want to put forward. Um, but there are groups that seem to make up stories out of whole cloth um, and believe that the bombings in Boston were a government plot in order to drive whatever legislation that they believe it will drive to limit civil liberties and public freedom. There are some people who are intentionally, and, and I don't doubt that many of them believe what they espouse, but they are intentionally propagating stories that have no basis in fact. That is very different from what I experienced in in my interaction with and my use of Reddit as one source of information. Uh, yeah, that, that's a weird PSA. Okay, uh, that will wrap it up. Just the last warning about the public mind and where it takes us. So that is going to wrap up this episode of Unrelated Things. I hope you enjoyed it enough to come back again. If you did or if you didn't, you can let me know at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. You can find, about, find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. And you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. Thank you for listening. It's Unrelated Things.